Hey, this is Chuck Billy from Testament right here on Mars Attacks. Hey, this is Tim Ripper Owens. This is Bobby Bliss from Overkill. You stay tuned. Hey, this is Ron Bumble for Fall of Guns N' Roses, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, this is Dave Windor from Monster Magnet. Hello, everybody. This is Michael Kiska talking. Hey, this is Richard Patrick from Stilter. Hey, everybody, what's happening? This is John Bush, and you're cranking it up on Mars Attacks. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Don Jameson from That Metal Show on VH1 Classic. Hey, everybody, this is your big daddy O Gene Hoagland. This is Kurt Winstein from Crowbar. Hey, Hi, this is Carolina Peace, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Yow! Hi, yeah, okay, so hey, this is Paul Shortino. How you doing? Formerly of Rough Cut, Quiet Riot, and currently with King Cobra. You're listening to Mars Attack. <laughs> hey, what's up, everyone? This is Mark from Chimera. This is Vinny Apsey from Kill Devil Hill, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Hey, this is Richard Christie from the band Charred Walls of the Damned on Metal Blade Records, and you are listening to Mars Attack. Yeah, this is John Schaefer from Iced Earth, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Hi, this is Bruce Kulik, and you're hanging with Mars Attacks. By the way, one of my favorite shows and movies, too.
Welcome, one and all, to episode 66 of the Mars Attacks podcast. I am your host, Victor, and this week we have a very, very special uh, episode for you. This will not be part of our Classic Albums column, although we will be revisiting uh, a classic album. Uh, We will be revisiting 1992's Revenge by Kiss, Earlier this year, Mitch LaFon, at that time at BraveWords.com, uh, he's now part of PureGainAudio.com, uh, uh, sat down and did a five-part interview with various people that were involved in Revenge. He spoke to Eric Singer, who's the current drummer in KISS, Bruce Kulick, who used to play in KISS, obviously. Both of them played on that album. Tommy Thayer, who is currently... Uh, playing lead for KISS uh, as Ace Freely or as the Spaceman or however you want to put it. Um, He was also involved in Revenge singing some backing vocals with a bunch of other people that I would assume the general public don't know about. And unless you've read Mitch LaFon's uh, five-part interview, you probably aren't aware of some of the other names like Dick Wagner who played on the album. Kevin Valentine, who played on the album. Um, no, Vinnie Vincent didn't play on the album. <laughs> so, you know, um, there's a lot of different things that have come up, a lot of different things that have been mentioned regarding this album. The five se- separate drummers that were part of the recording sessions, for example. Um, and just other little tidbits that were mentioned. So, essentially... When I speak to Mitch, it's always a long, drawn-out conversation. Uh, It's just two music nerds just chewing the fat, per se, on various bands that we're into. And a lot of times it leads to talking a lot about Kiss, or leads to talking a lot about Kiss, I should say. Anyway, so since he had done this five-part interview, I figured, all right, well... Let me talk to him about this whole experience, things that sort of stood out to him, things that he didn't know about, that he found out uh, after digging digging a little and speaking to all these people. And while we did the interview, he pretty much said, you know what, why don't you read the five parts and tell me what you thought of them? So episode 66 is going to be the first part of the Kiss Revenge special. Episode 67 will be the second part, so that will be sort of my, uh, you know, response to that. And after that, we'll get to um, an episode that will be the next Classic Albums column. So, not to be confused with the other Classic Albums, uh, we're just doing this sort of special on Kiss's Revenge uh, right now. Uh, For those of you that don't know what the Classic Albums column is all about, you can go to MarsAttacksRadio.com and you can either stream the various episodes um, that pertain to the Classic Albums column, read the comments that people have sent in, the written comments regarding the albums that have been discussed, and actually you can download the 
podcasts as well. Uh, you can also subscribe via iTunes. We ask that you leave a comment, good, bad, or indifferent, on iTunes regarding Mars Attacks podcast. Uh, we ask that you also send your input in uh, or your comments. You can send them to input at marsattacksradio.com. You can also leave your comments online. And um, just to run down the albums that we've touched on so far during the Classic Albums column, uh, you'll find everything from Suicidal Tendencies' self-titled debut, Pantera's Far Beyond Driven. Uh, You'll also find, I'm scrolling down here as I read these albums off, Shout at the Devil by Motley Crue. You'll find Judas Priest Painkiller. Uh, let's see here. Peace Cells by Megadeth. That actually features some comments by David Elveson. Uh, let's see, what else? Anima by Tool. Uh, Van Halen 2 by Van Halen. Queens of the Stone Age Songs for the Deaf. Cleansing by Prong. And we kicked things off a little over a year ago. Metallica's Injustice for All. The original idea was to release these episodes... You know, once a month. Um, As some of you that are podcasters that may be listening to this, you all understand that life gets in the way. (laughs) You know, things aren't always what we'd like them to be. And sometimes, you know, you have to put things off. The reason for my podcasting being sparse is that a close family members going through some issues at the moment, which I'd rather not discuss, and it's been pretty straining, to say the least. So, um, couple that with having a a newborn son uh, that is 14 months old, and another one on the way by December, and, you know, I've got my hands full and haven't been doing, you know, as many shows as perhaps I'd like to, Um but you know we're we're gonna try we're gonna try we're gonna try to get one of these classic albums out there uh, once a month and try to do more interviews and maybe even do some episodes where it's just music you know um, if you're interested in contributing to Mars Attacks Radio we're always interested in bringing people aboard I've tried you know feeling out um, people that I know uh, to have them contribute. And it's always a battle. You know, I understand. It's difficult for me to set time aside. And I know that it's difficult for other people to do so as well. Um, I honestly can't pay anyone to do this. But, you know, if we get into doing album reviews or things like that, you know, I can do things like, uh, you know, provide people with advanced copies of albums if they're provided to me or, you know, streaming copies and have them listen to the albums and write reviews on them. Uh, there have been times where I've been able to get, you know, um, accredited to go in to interview bands and whatnot and have been able to do so because, you know, where I'm physically located. So, you know, I'd like to expand what we do and grow the whole uh, Mars Attacks podcast thing and and see what we can do we're also still feeling out to see if there's anyone that wants to have us you know in radio um on some online station but again you know uh with everything going on i'm not sure that i have all the time in the world to do that at the moment so we're still you know feeling things out in any event some of the people involved with the classic albums column 
You have Charlie Benante of Anthrax, David Ellison of Megadeth, who I just mentioned, Gene Hoagland. If for nothing else, listen to Gene Hoagland's comments. There are some ridiculously insane comments that you'll hear him make. He says, you know, he lays things on the line, good, bad, or indifferent. For everyone that says that, you know, Van Halen isn't an influence on metal, listen to that VH2 um, episode and see what he says about Van Halen and how much of an influence Alex Van Halen actually is on his playing. So, there you go. Doro Pesh, Tim Ripper Owens, Bobby Blitz Ellsworth, Don Jameson from that metal show, Jim Florentine from that metal show, Bumblefoot from Guns N' Roses, Chris Poland from Megadeth, formerly of Megadeth, currently of Ohm, John Schaefer of Iced Earth, Jason Bittner of Shadows Fall, Dan Lorenzo of Hades, Nonfiction, and The Cursed, Alan Tecchio of Seven Witches, Hades, Nonfiction, Watchtower, uh, Autumn Hour as well, another very cool band that Alan Tecchio has. Chris Sangarides, if you've seen the Anvil uh, documentary, Chris Sangarides is a big part of that. Uh, actually, he appears, he lends comments um, to the Classic Albums column. And wait till you see what he mentions about a specific Ozzy album. You guys will be shocked, to say the least. Mark Hunter of Chimera, Metal Mike from Halford's band. Steve Smythe of Forbidden Testament, Nevermore, so on and so forth. Glenn Drover, formerly of Megadeth. And the one and only Mark Striegel, the man that sort of gave me the proverbial kick in the ass to get started with the podcasting. Uh, And outside of that, we have a lot of other great podcasts that have helped out. You know, we have people from Iron City Rocks, Um, we have, uh, you know, people from Guitar World, Metal Assault, About.com, um, or I should say About.com's Heavy Metal section, uh, Decibel Geek Podcast, uh, Radioactive Metal, Focus on Metal, and a bunch of other, uh, brothers and sisters from the Cast Iron Ring. Uh, if you don't know what the Cast Iron Ring is, that is a network of podcasts that Mars Attacks Podcast actually belongs to. And um, Cast Iron Ring not only features um, Focus on Metal, Radioactive Metal, um, let's see, Iron City Rocks, um, Signal to Noise, and I apologize for fumbling all over things uh, here, but uh, it's also Shockwave Skull uh, Skull Sessions, excuse me, uh, Shockwave's Hard Radio Dot com also signal to noise and uh, bone hand heavy half hour but we've also just added a cool cool website or uh, podcast I should say from Brazil a uh, wiki metal if you read anything um, on blabbermouth lately you'll see a lot of interviews featured by wiki metal so it's cool to bring them aboard onto the cast iron ring cast iron ring also has a, an app in the iTunes store. There's also an Android version. So uh, check that out uh, as well. Uh, I mentioned Decibel Geek Podcast. I do want to mention that Bruce Kulik was heavily featured in the last Decibel Geek Podcast. I always interchange messages with Chris Zimzak, one of the hosts from the 
Decibel Geek Podcast. Uh, some interesting information mentioned by Bruce Kulick about Ace Freely. I'm not going to really get into it, but it's Ace Freely information regarding KISS. So if you're interested at all, uh, check out the latest episode of the Decibel Geek Podcast. I also want to thank Chris and Aaron for giving me um, an avenue to discuss my uh, 9-11 happenings once again. Uh, I've done this a bunch of times. I've done it with, you know, with Mars Attacks podcast, with the Mars Attacks radio show. I've done it with my Spanish show, Fusion Sonic, as well, where I've discussed, you know, what I experienced that day, being there live and in person uh, to witness that second plane hitting uh, the Twin Towers. So I wrote everything up and pretty much... um, you know, the the guys over at Despo Geek posted it, so that that's pretty much it. I think it's pretty self-explanatory. Uh, I will post a link to that in the show notes, uh, so go over there and check that out. And check out Despo Geek. It is a, it is a really cool podcast. Um, you know, I'm of the belief that I'm just another fish in a huge pond of podcasts. Uh, I'm not competing with, you know, any of these people. Um, I feel that, you know, it's only helping spread the word of metal and, you know, being part of cast iron ring, it also, uh, you know, I, I don't tend to like to overlap, you know, um, who they're interviewing. Unfortunately, a lot of us, you know, have the same interviews offered. So there's only, you know, a limited amount of things that you can ask people, you know, so it's sort of like, you know, what's the point? So uh, another thing that I may do is sort of bring out like classic interviews that have never come out uh, in podcast format that I've done. You know, I have interviews with uh, Bruce Kulick, actually. Um, I did have that one episode where we discussed his BK3 album and his Kiss Legacy. Um, but, you know, there are other interviews that I've done. Uh, like D. Snyder, a 19-year-old <laughs> Victor interviewing uh, D. Snyder is a trip. Hearing me fumble over words, um, it's entertaining to me anyway, and it's sort of you know head scratching that somebody that famous would put up with me. Wish I could get him back on the show and sort of do another interview now, but you know, hey, them them's the breaks, I guess, as they say. Uh, but anyway, got a few more of those up my sleeve, maybe putting some of those out as well. But, uh, things are good, you know, uh, and, you know, hopefully, uh, things will keep getting bigger and better with Mars Attacks. You know, um, I have no delusions of making tons of money off of this. I make zero money off of this. As a matter of fact, I spend more money than I make. I don't make any money off of this. So, uh, that's that. Um, let's get into some music before jumping into Mitch LaFon. Um, and we're going to get into, um, we're going to get into some Kiss music off of Revenge. And then we're going to jump into the segment with Mitch. Uh, I know I've been babbling here for a bit now, so the last thing that I want to mention, remember to follow us on Facebook, 
which is Facebook forward slash Mars Attacks Radio. Follow us on Twitter, which is Mars Aries 2005. Follow us on Google Plus if you if you may <laughs> or if you must. Uh, in any event, go to MarsAttacksRadio.com, and on the right hand column there, you'll find everything you need to know regarding all the various social networks that we're a part of. Uh, so anyway, let's get into a track that Mitch Lafon talks about at length. Uh, this is one of my personal all-time favorite KISS tracks. And lo and behold, one of the four members that appear on the cover do not play on this track. So you'll have to listen to the interview to find out exactly who that is. This is Take It Off by KISS. We'll jump into the interview with Mitch LaFon right after the right after Take It Off. And we'll catch you on the other side of the interview.
How did you come up with the idea to do the 20th anniversary of Revenge? Did someone come up to you and say, hey, you know, this would be a cool idea? Or was it just something that you had been, you know, counting the days, months, hours to do something to celebrate this album? Uh, yeah, it's, it's the second part. I um, I asked Eric and Bruce in October or November of last year to do the 20th anniversary. I was sort of looking for something to do as a Christmas special. And they both said, uh, well, it's in May. And I said, well, you know, who cares? And they said, well, no, it's in May. So uh, I waited. And um, end of April, beginning of May, I got them on the phone. And we decided to do it. And as the story progressed, uh, you know, and I heard about Tommy Thayer doing the, the background vocals and uh, obviously Kevin Valentine on um, Take It Off. I asked Bruce, I said, can you put me in touch with Kevin? He said, let me try. And of course it worked out. And Tommy, I wrote to him personally via email and he responded back. He said that he was unable to do a, an actual phone interview, but if I sent him the questions, he'd send me back his answers, which he did very quickly, by the way. And that's how it came about. And I was kind of hoping that as I got to part and, and Dick Wagner, I've known for a long time, so I just called him up and we got it all done. And I kept saying, OK, now that I got part one, part two, part three, maybe Bruce and Gene will will want to be part of it. Maybe Kiss Online will report on it. And I'm still waiting on that. So <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> but I have room for part six and part seven. <laughs> what do you feel is the probability of you getting Gene or Paul to comment on the album? Zero. Absolutely zero. But, you know, I'm hoping. Uh, I'm hoping, but I'm hoping at a zero. Listen, I, I reached out to Doc McGee, and he said he'd have somebody in the uh, KISS office get back in touch with me. This was a while ago. Nothing's happened, so I'm assuming nothing will happen. But listen, KISS has a tour coming up, uh, and if they're doing press locally or or that I'm that I'm, you know, able to get in on, I'll ask him about the tour. I'll respect what the interview set up in, but I'll throw in a revenge question at the end if I can, if I have time. Certainly would love it. Right. Okay. And what does this album mean to you personally? Oh, listen. The reason why I'm so stuck on revenge is because it really was the rebirth of my Kiss fandom. You know, um, after Creatures of the Night... <clears throat> Ace had left, and then they had the excitement with the makeup coming off with Lick It Up, and I was I was into it. I was I loved Lick It Up. I loved Creature the Other Night, and in eighty four eighty five, Animalize came out. Didn't like the album cover. I didn't like the, the visual look. I didn't like the songs. I didn't like Heaven's on Fire when it first came out, and other bands started coming into my life. Def Leppard with Pyromania, Motley Crue with Shout at the Devil. You know, and as we move forward, Asylum came out when it, that album came out. Couldn't stand it. I thought I thought visually it looked like a horrible album cover and the band looked stupid in the Tears Are Falling video. And then Bon Jovi hit and then, you know, Great White and Poison and all these bands had more success. And suddenly Kiss wasn't leading the pack. They were following behind like Crazy Nights was really them trying to be Bon Jovi. Hot in the Shade was really them trying to be either 
you know, late stage Motley Crue or, or trying to do what Aerosmith did with Permanent Vacation. And, and you know, in, in 90, 91, I was just like, what am I doing here? This, this band's terrible. <laughs> and, and it's really weird to think because I, I loved them since I was five years old, six years old, you know, 75, 76, 77. And Revenge came out, and I remember it very specifically. I walked into the living room. The TV was on by, you know, accidentally. And um, Revenge was playing, and, and, and I didn't realize, I mean, sorry, Unholy was playing. I didn't realize who it was. I didn't know what the video was. The video just happened to be on. And then it scanned over, and, and I saw Gene, and I went, wait a minute, that's Gene. What, what's he doing in a heavy metal thing? And then I saw the blonde-haired drummer, and I go, Kiss doesn't have a blonde-haired drummer. And then at the end, you know, <laughs> at the end of MTV and stuff, it would say, Kiss, Unholy, Universal Records. And I went, oh, oh. And I went to try, I went to, try <laughs> to buy the album, and the album didn't exist. It wasn't out. It was, you know, the one-month pre-release video or whatever. And, man, I sat in front of that TV just waiting for that to come into rotation, and I bought the album, and it was brilliant. It was the album I needed. I mean, after Appetite for Destruction had come out, after the Black album, or or in that period of the Black Enter Sand, it was the Kiss album that needed to be made. And that's when I re-became a Kiss fan. And then, you know, you look at it chronologically. They did their tour in South America. Then they did the Unplug thing. Then the reunion tour hit. You know, I was in the studio with Bruce and Eric working on this Ace Fraley tribute album. Kiss World was was back, and it all started with that visual of the blonde drummer in Unholy, and that's what changed it. And if it wasn't for Unholy and the rest of Revenge and that tour, which was phenomenal because they were playing Parasite and stuff again, if it wasn't for that, you know, I, who knows? Maybe I'd be a, a great Flock of Seagulls fan today or something. <laughs> and um, yeah, I mean, that, that was it. it. It made me a Kiss fan again. You know, Kiss was sort of that fan that was the band that was in that closet of mine. Oh, I have this band that I used to like. They used to wear makeup and and it really did it. Uh, you know, listen, and Hot in the Shade was so disappointing when it came out and Crazy Nights with like Bon Jovi Light. And of course, now I love all those albums a lot more. But so that's it. That's what it meant. Crazy Nights is the only one that I've never been able to get into. And the first time I heard it was exactly what you said, the, the Bon Jovi light. And I just, I wasn't buying yeah. it. <laughs> so, and I didn't get it. It's, it's, and yeah. it wasn't the Kiss album. You know, when they did lick it up, they were changing the sound of Kiss. And they were, you know, they were trying to do something. When they did Creatures of the Night, after the elder, they were trying to do something. When they did the elder, they were trying to do something. When they did Crazy Nights, they were just imitating. They weren't trying. It. They weren't trying anything. They were yeah. just, All right, Bon Jovi has uh, wanted dead or alive. We'll give them, uh, you know, whatever. And it's like, uh -uh. but you know, now I like it. Now it's like a guilty pleasure. <laughs> so. There are five separate interviews that you did. Out of the five people that you spoke to, was anyone difficult to uh, convince to actually discuss the album? Difficult to discuss the album? No. Uh, I mean, the, the hardest one would be Tommy, 
he, you know, he didn't, he didn't have time. And I don't, I don't want to say he didn't want to, cause it's different. He didn't have time to sit down for an interview because, you know, they're doing the monster and they're, you know, the tour is coming up. So we did it through email. And of course, when you do it through email, you ask a question, you get an answer. There's no chance for follow-up. There's no chance to branch out. So it made it more difficult in that sense. Tommy himself absolutely was not difficult. Very charming, in fact, of him to bother answering an email about it. But I wish I could have had, could have had him on the phone and really sort of peeled back some layers and, and, and gotten a deeper story. Because when you read the Tommy one, it's very sort of black and white. Here's the question. Here's the answer. Here's the question. I would have wished for more, but listen, I also understand the fact that he's in a band that's going on a major tour and he just doesn't have time. So, yeah. Right. Okay. And out of all of the content that you received, uh, was there one thing that surprised you uh, out of all these conversations? Oh, a bunch of stuff. Um, you know, the, the fact that uh, Ainsley Dunsbar this great sort of progressive rock drummer had been brought in uh, as, as the studio drummer for revenge. And they cut songs with him and they cut demos with him until they realized this ain't working. You know, it's sort of like having Neil Peart <laughs> of Rush join Kiss. It just wasn't working. And um, I never knew right. that. I mean, you know, it, to me, it's always been Eric Carr was trying it. Eric Carr got sick. Eric Singer came in, Eric Singer went on tour, Kevin Valentine came in, finished one track. I mean, that was the story. And, and all of a sudden right. we hear, well, it was actually five drummers. Uh, Ainsley came in, it didn't work. They hired a second guy, that guy didn't work. And you're like, oh, it was five drummers who tried for revenge? So that, that <laughs> was a shocker, you know? And, and then, of course, there's the whole angle about Vinnie Vincent doing the scratch at the beginning of Unholy, which it's like, oh, Vinny's on this album too? Great. I hate it now. But, <laughs> but you know, so there was, I mean, there's a bunch of surprising stuff in there, I think. Did they drop the names of any of the other four drummers or was Ainsley Dunbar the only name that uh, no, they listen, gave uh, you? The five drummers are, uh, there's Ainsley Dunbar, there's Eric Carr, mm -hmm. there's Eric Singer, mm -hmm. and there's Kevin Valentine. Right. So that's four. And then the fifth one, Eric says he doesn't remember, and Bruce doesn't remember or doesn't want to tell me, either or. So there's five guys, and four of them <laughs> we know now. The fifth one is a mystery, but somewhere, somewhere along the line I'll, I'll find out, even if it's in 10 years. I, I got to know. I got to know. Who is that guy? <laughs> but Right. Can it be any wackier than Ainsley Dunsbar, though? You're absolutely right with the uh, Neil Peart um, reference there. I mean, I couldn't even, I couldn't imagine what that would sound and like. And what's interesting would be the fact that, uh, you know, Gene keeps everything. So unless Bob Resman, who does sometimes wipe tapes if he doesn't like the take, there actually could be revenge era songs, either fully completed or with scratch tracks with Ainsley's drumming on it. And that would be very cool to hear, you know? And, and of course the one other thing that I forgot to mention is that there is one song called, do you want to touch me now that was recorded 
and not on the album. And apparently, uh, Bruce has a copy of it, and he says it is a kick-ass rocker. And uh, hey, listen, one more revenge rocker would make my world even more complete. So I, I gotta hear it. Absolutely, I mean, it, it exists. <laughs> it was recorded. So I gotta hear it. You know, and that. I don't know. Do you think that they would ever put out a, a box set with that material? I mean, they had a chance to pull the trigger on the uh, uh, material with the Van Halen brothers, that's, and that, that didn't, didn't come out. Didn't so do you think that so, they'd yeah, release this? That didn't come out because of legal reasons. Eddie Van Halen said no. He does not want it out. And uh, there was, <laughs> from, what I, from what I understand, obviously I'm not there. From what I understand, there was threats of lawsuits, threats of all kinds of stuff, and so they didn't put it out. Um, Bruce said very candidly, I'm really surprised that they didn't put that song on the box set. And he also said, I don't understand why they didn't put that song on the box set. So, you know, maybe somewhere down the line there'll be a box set too, or there'll be a revenge, you know, deluxe edition. I'm sure at some point it'll come out, and you know, unfortunately, a lot of these tracks come out when the artist passes away and suddenly the vaults open up. But I certainly hope it happens. Right. And it happens without Gene or Paul or anybody else having to pass away. But so I'm, I'm hoping, you know, it, it was a song written by Dave the Snake Zabo, Bob Ezrin and Paul Stanley. So uh, when you have <laughs> Dave can write a song. He, you know, and Bob Ezra, right. if he's putting his brain into a song, it's going to have a hook. It's going to have it's going to be special. So it's got to be a great track. And Bruce says he I mean, he said he'd play it to me on the phone. And I'm going to have to phone him for that, by the way. <laughs> I got to have to hear that. <laughs> so, yeah, hopefully it'll come out. Was there any part of the um, the discussions that you had that disappointed you, or you were expecting to find out more and you didn't? Um, I'm trying to think about that. Well, the only I guess the listen with uh, with Tommy again because it was an email interview. I had wished for a longer story, so that was a little bit disappointing. But, you know, listen, again, I'm very happy and very gracious. It's very gracious of Tommy to have even sent me an email. But I still would have had, would have loved that. But the major disappointment is that uh, with, with all the contacts that I have and with all the, the reaching out I've done, neither Paul nor Gene, well, listen, they probably don't know who I am. So n none of their publicists or contacts <laughs> have made it so that an interview has happened. And I really think not for me as a person to talk to them, which obviously would be a thrill, but I think for the fans, uh, especially the fans of that era, because Revenge, to me, brought in a whole new era of KISS fans. You know, there was a lot of, at the time, 13 and 14-year-olds who were turned on by KISS who obviously weren't around in 1975. And, and for a lot right. of people, that non-makeup KISS is their KISS. And it would have been interesting for me or, or for them to have Paul and Gene look back and reflect and, and, and say, listen, this was an important album in our lives. And, and, you know, it, it, it created a buzz and, and we kept our heads above water while Nirvana was drowning everybody else. So that's the, I guess that's the major disappointment. I mean, Eric is never a disappointment on the phone. Bruce is never a disappointment on the phone. Dick is for me is never a disappointment when we're on the phone. 
they're always gracious. They always tell me stuff that they probably shouldn't tell me. Um, you know, th there's no complaints. Absolutely no complaints. It is sort of um, disappointing that uh, that there is a certain air of the band that with the makeup coming back on, that they've almost tried to brush under the rug. So I, I do agree with you 100% with that. With this album, not only being the first thing that a lot of people would have um, heard, but similar to your reaction, you know, it, it's an album that brought a lot of people back into the fold and made them believe, you know what? These guys still have, you know, something left, something worthwhile for me to, uh, you know, grab onto and to attach myself to. And, and for the first time in quite a few years, it was cool it really to be was. a Kiss and fan again. again. And it was an album where Kiss was blazing the, the trail again. By 92, uh, Bon Jovi was starting to fall apart and then ended up taking a little break. Uh, Motley Crue was starting to fall apart and was heading into a break. Great White had fallen apart. Rat had fallen apart. Uh, Tesla wasn't doing what Tesla was doing before. All all the bands that carried us through the 80s, Poison and Cliff, had all sort of started falling apart by 92. So it, it ended up leaving Kiss the only band standing that was playing hard rock that was still in, on radio with, with Guns N' Roses. And, and so, you know... And they made an album that, to this day, fans will go, boy, the riff and Unholy, man, it's crazy. And and they hadn't, you know, nobody yeah. sat around and go, oh, man, the riff on Bang Bang You was awesome. Like, nobody did that. <laughs> suddenly, with Revenge, right. people were going, fuck, that's cool. That's so great. You know? And, yeah. and it's too bad. And it's also the one where... Bruce Kulick stopped being the guy who wasn't ace. Suddenly, yeah. Kiss was Bruce Kulick and Paul and Gene and Eric. Like It was no longer, oh, it's Gene and Paul oh, and this guy who's not ace. And it became a band. It wasn't just two guys and not two guys. It was now four guys. And that was exciting, too. Right. Absolutely. His soloing went to a, a, a completely different level th throughout the album. I, I mean, I think any solo, probably the worst solo off of that album is better than the best solo on any of the other albums that he yeah. played on I mean, with listen, the band. On Forever, the song Forever, he has got a great solo in there, great acoustic solo. But other than that one, what memorable solos does he have i mean he did some great guitar work on i'm alive and he did some great guitar work on on some of the other songs but he never did anything that was memorable anything that would want to you know copy right. or, or any guy would say oh when i heard you know oh, all night i picked up the guitar and that's why i'm in a band i mean nobody did that but but when you get to unholy right. and when you get to domino and when you get to those songs there are people who said man, I heard Unholy, and I just had to pick up a guitar and start playing. And, and, and that was the difference. And it was an important difference, especially for Bruce. You know? Yeah, absolutely, I agree. Uh, I think that album truly made him vital within uh, w within the KISS fan, within the KISS army, <laughs> and, and anyone else that was remotely oh, interested absolutely. in the band. I mean, without Revenge, when the reunion tour hit 
uh, people would have just gone, ah, finally, we got rid of that guy. But because of Revenge, when the reunion tour hit, people went, oh, they're getting rid of Bruce? Damn it. What, what the fuck? What, what are we doing? So yeah. it was so important for the band, for the personnel in the band. And, um, you know, listen, Eric Singer was was fantastic. I mean, he really brought Kiss drumming to another level. Eric Carr obviously was great. But Eric Carr's drumming never really sort of jived fully with what Kiss was doing. It was a more power drumming. But Peter Chris was more of a swing drummer. And Eric Carr, Eric Singer was able right. to bring the power and the swing. And that, too, was unique to the Kiss sound. Yeah, de definitely. Um, I mean, I, I think that growing up, being the huge Kiss fan that I am, I always look back at what Peter had done on Alive and Alive 2 and thought, oh, there's no way that someone can top this. And then seeing them with Eric Singer live, I mean, there's no there, there's no two ways about it. He is by far the most skilled drummer, if not most skilled musician that the mm. band has ever had. Absolutely. Because you have to remember, when uh, he came in, he had to play the Eric Carr stuff, and he did just as good as Eric. And when he played the Peter stuff, he played it just as good as Peter. And then in 2004, after the farewell tour, they got him back in the band and they said, we don't want you to be Eric Singer. We want you to play like Peter. And they got rid of his double bass kit and they put him down with the single bass and they, 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 they scaled back his kit on the stage and he had to play like Peter played. And he pulled it off brilliantly in 2004. And, yeah. you know, on Revenge, he said, they said, we want you to take Parasite and Deuce and Love Gun. And we want you to make them sound like monsters. And he brought in a double bass. And like, and he, I think he's the only one in Kiss who could have done that. Peter Chris couldn't, couldn't have double bassed his way through Parasite and Unholy. I mean, it's not going to happen. And right. Eric Carr might have. But... It might have been too powerful for Deuce and Parasite without the swing element. And Eric's got it all. I mean, he's really got it all. Yeah, without a doubt. Um, as far as the various conversations you had, did anything that come up sway your opinion one way or another Regarding the album or regarding a track, was there a conversation that maybe made you appreciate a song more or less than you did previous to speaking um, to someone? Yeah, you know, when I spoke to, um, well, there's just two tracks. When I spoke to Eric Singer, uh, one thing he mentioned was at the end of Unholy that he used two gongs and he hit a gong sound. And I I've listened to that song hundreds of times if not thousands of times and i never really paid attention that to the gong sound so i went back and it made me appreciate that song more because you know peter chris had a gong back in the day and of course eric being a big queen fan they used a gong and so all of a sudden on in unholy at the end i'm hearing this gong that i had never paid attention to before or never realized there was a gong so i had a better appreciation for that and then the other song is God Gave Rock and Roll to You, Part 2, whatever you want to call it. I think that's a terrible song. I, I always thought it was a terrible song. Can't stand it. <laughs> never could stand it. When they play it in concert, I go to the bathroom. But Eric explained to me that he's a huge Queen fan, 
And this song is very reminiscent to him of Queen and how they break the song down and how there's a, a middle part that, and with that sort of vision in my head, I, I went, you know, you're right, it is sort of. So all of a sudden it, it became a little cooler to me the way they've done it. And, and, and I could sort of appreciate what they were trying to do with the track. So, um, you know, I, I hate it a bit less now. And also the fact that um, <laughs> he was explaining to me that there's two versions of the track in case people don't know. On the Bill and Ted uh, Excellent right. Adventure or Bogus Adventure soundtrack, the drumming is Eric Singer. And on mm -hmm. Revenge, um, sorry, on Revenge, but Eric Carr played in the video and Eric Carr came in and might have overdubbed some stuff and put some vocals on it. And it's interesting to right. me now to know that there's an actual version where it's all Eric and no Eric Carr. And so that, that was that was kind of cool to me, to me, too, to know that there's two distinct versions and the fact that I bought the soundtrack and Revenge was actually for a reason and not just a waste of money like I thought for the last 20 years. So so that, that too was interesting. <laughs> so, so for once, or I should say after 20 years, um, I've finally uh, proven that something that everyone thought that I was absolutely nuts about is correct. I've always said that the version on Bill and Ted was not the same as what's on Revenge, and I've heard people say, "Oh no, no, it's it's just oh. mixed a little differently. It was probably mixed for you know the movie soundtrack instead." And I always said, "There's a slight nuance. It sounds it a little and, different." Um... If if you take the time to read the Eric Singer interview, um, he details where the differences are. And one of the songs has both drummers on it, and one of the songs has only Eric Singer on it. And that, hmm. that, that's really important. I mean, for, for trivia fans, you know, you can say, name the one Kiss song that has two of the drummers on it. And you go, uh, uh. And the answer is God gave rock and roll to you. So, you know, listen, obviously when you're going to have background vocals and a little bit of um, Eric Carr playing over the track, uh, it's going to sound different than when Eric Singer plays it all by himself. And so, yeah, there, there are right. two versions. Which and, and the Bill and Ted version is the better version. I've, I've always preferred so, that version as well. Fun trip, fun so, trivia. Yeah. So, so Axel can't be the first one to profess to having more than one drummer on a track. Yeah. There, Kiss did it. Practically, well, I was going to say Kiss did it twenty years before him, but given the fact of when Chinese Democracy started, it was only Kiss a few has years before him. Quite a bit. Him. I mean, uh, 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 Eric <laughs> Carr on Animalize played on a bunch of tracks, but all the overdubbing was done by Alan Schwartzberg. And same thing happened on The Elder. Eric Carr did the tracks and. Alan Schwartzberg did the over uh, over um, dubbing, so there's some cheating going on there. But in terms of two guys who are actually members of the band, that's the only song. Right. Fun nuance. Okay. And um, as far as we've sort of touched upon this, but um, where do you think the album stands in order of importance for the band, taking into consideration their entire legacy taking into consideration albums that 
other people uh, may consider to be their best album or some of their best albums. Uh, where do you think, as a music historian, not your personal uh, favorite per se, but where do you think as a historian uh, this album should be placed within well, the history of the really band? That's a really good question. Um, that's a really tough one. I mean, Kiss seems to be judged even today, by two albums, Destroyer, Alive, Destroyer, Alive. That seems to be it. Um, the albums in the um, 80s are pretty much ignored, especially historically. Um, right. The drum sound on Creatures of the Night is always mentioned and revered. Uh, the track Lick It Up and a little bit of the Lick It Up album is always mentioned because it's sort of got kissed into that next phase. Uh, Revenge, boy, it's a tough one. I mean, it, essentially, it's the last album before the band broke up and, and went on a reunion tour. For for new fans that were 13 and 14 at the time, it is the album. It is their, their kiss. But in the grand scheme of kissness, it probably ranks... Uh, I wouldn't say near the bottom, but I mean, it probably would rank fifth or sixth in importance. I mean, listen, the first Kiss album has to rank in the top five because that's what introduced everybody to Kiss. Dress to Kill, right. just because it contains rock and roll all night, which is the signature song, has to be up there. Alive, because without Alive, Kiss wouldn't have been alive past that year. Destroyer because of Bob <laughs> Ezrin, uh, you know, in terms of significance. And you'd even have to put the Elder above it because the Elder was such a gigantic failure that it slammed the brakes on Kiss and almost destroyed Kiss and, in fact, led to Ace Fraley leaving. Peter Chris was gone. So in terms of music, you know, musically, is the Elder a great album? No. But in terms of importance, the fact that that album was such uh, a disaster that the band almost stopped existing, you have to say, wow, that's, that's an important moment. I mean, you know, it's, you know, death in, in people's lives are an important moment. So that was almost a death of Kiss. So it's, it's an important, so, you know, when you factor all those in, Revenge probably, I'm, I'm just looking on my fingers, Revenge would come in sixth. And, uh, you know, listen, <laughs> in terms of musically, for me, it's top three. I mean, absolutely top three. Love it, love it, love it, love it. But in terms, but in terms of importance, what did it mean <laughs> to the band? It's probably sixth. I mean, you can't throw out Alive. You can't throw out Destroyer. You can't throw out the significance of the disaster that The Elder was and what it did to the Kiss career. Um, musically, you can't deny the fact that uh, Vinnie Vincent coming into the band and the drum sound on Creatures of the Night redefine the band from you know it saved them from the disaster that was the elder so yeah revenge probably sixth or even seventh in in terms of importance for what it meant but musically top three okay and you sort of jumped ahead there my next question was sort of uh gonna switch it up slightly with for your personal opinion where do you where do you rank it within your favorite kiss albums um I actually rank it ahead of Destroyer. I think Destroyer is 
highly overrated. Yes, it's got Shout It Out Loud. Yes, it's got Detroit Rock City. But it's also got a whole bunch of sounds and stuff that... Listen, Alice Cooper does sounds and stuff. Kiss does rock and roll. So I get I get lost in that in that plot sometimes. <laughs> but musically, boy, I'm just trying to think. Uh, I'm gonna have to go with Creatures of the Night as being my favorite Kiss album of all times, and then I guess I'll go with Revenge as second. And you know, uh, boy, I always loved uh, Dynasty, but that's for personal reasons. Uh, you know, and then I Kiss Kiss, the first Kiss album is going to have to go in third or, or fourth, depending. I mean, listen, Strutter, Black Diamond, Deuce, Cold Gin. I mean, how can that not be in your top three Kiss albums? So, yeah, Revenge, Revenge is top three, probably right. number two. Creatures of the Night never gets old. You, that album, you know, I, I hit the playlist play or I throw it in the car <laughs> or, or it's on the radio and you hear danger, danger, and you hear creature, and that drum sound, especially when you hear it when you have headphones on, oh, it, it, it's almost orgasmic, quite frankly. You know, we actually uh, have the same uh, favorite Kiss album. I absolutely agree, one hundred percent. And um, and I'm quite frankly, I'm shocked that they never tried going back to to that sound um i've heard demos of i forget what song it is off of asylum where they sort of have that that same sound going but they've never actually revisited it and i'm actually shocked that when they did uh, smashes thrashes and hits and every other subsequent uh greatest hits album they've actually toned down the drum sound for I Love It Loud. It yeah, sort of never made sense to me. I guess they want to, to sort of balance out the sound with the rest of the tracks. But yeah, it, 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 is, it is a little strange. And um, though I have to say, there is one thing on I Love It Loud that I've never liked. And it's that stupid fade out, fade in at the end. It's always driven me crazy. Right. I don't know, I don't know why. It's, it drives me <laughs> crazy. I just wish that the track would have gone through and it would have faded out like a normal song. But anyway, that aside... Uh, you know, when, when they talk about Monster and they talk about Sonic Boom and they go, Kiss sounds like Destroyer again. I go, ah, no, no. And then, yeah. uh, was it Tommy or Eric who just did an interview? And they said, oh, no, it was Dave the Snake Zabo of uh, Skid Row. He said, I heard the new Monster album. It sounds like Revenge. And I went, yes, thank you. Yeah. Now, if the only the next album could be It Sounds Like Revenge mixed with Creatures of the Night, Nirvana. <laughs> I'd be real happy at that point. <laughs> yeah, I I, I uh, agree with you 100% there as well. That that's one thing that I absolutely hate um, hearing from Nikki Six because every Motley Crue album, well, this is going to be a mix between Shout at the no, Devil and Doctor no. Feelgood. And you hear it, and no, it never. It will never sound like either one of those albums again. I'd prefer them to say, you know what? It sounds a little bit more. In, in Kiss's case, if if you say no, it sounds like uh, Dress to Kill or Rock and Roll yeah. Over. I'm there. I, I'm <laughs> you know, I'm happy ones. with yeah, that. No, I, yeah, Motley. Listen, Motley Crue's last album. They had that song Saints of Los Angeles, which was. To me, an all-time classic. I think it fits in with their their catalog, but the rest of the album, oh, 
Oi, vey. What the hell was that? <laughs> the rest of the album was written for, I'm completely convinced that um, they wrote that album to fit in with every other band they have um, that are managed by the yeah. same management as them. Papa Roach, Trapped, all the bands that they took out on that right, first right. Uh, crew fest. And it sounds cool for those bands, but not for a bunch of guys, you know, in their late 40s, early 50s that are known for doing something completely different. I have no problem with a band trying to make their uh, sound modern or making it relevant, but keeping it somewhat relative to what they've done in the past. I think... In in the last few years, the best band to do that was Rat with uh, Infestation. Infestation. Oh, yeah. You see, that's the thing. If you're going to be a band like a Metallica that has put out albums regularly and you want to experiment, even though it's Lulu and it's terrible, okay, I'll give it to you. But when you're Motley Crue right. or Kiss or, or a band that's coming back with a return. Now, now, remember, Sonic Boom was never supposed to happen. After the Farewell Tour, after Psycho Circus, they said no new album. So it had been 10 years. It, it had been a decade. So yeah. you owe it to your fans to go back to the classic sound because after that much time, that's what they want to hear. And Van Halen, by the way, got it right. Uh, you know, you mentioned yeah. Infestation, which was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. But Van Halen made a Van Halen album. Same I mean, thing. Yeah. The, the follow-up to 1984, had this been 1986, would have been a different kind of truth. I mean, had it been two years later, a normal album cycle, that would have been the album that would have followed. So that Van Halen did it right. And Motley Crue didn't do it right. They, they tried to be... Uh, you know, yeah. hot hot radio or whatever, active rock radio. And it's like, no, nah, you're not active rock radio, my friend. You're classic rock radio. Yeah. Give me classic rock music. Thank you. Yeah. And, well, anyway, Motley Crue. God, God bless Motley <laughs> Crue. So. Getting back to yeah. Revenge here, um, is there one track off of Revenge? I mean, obviously, if there's a track off of this that they uh, that they may play, it's going to be Unholy. But is there another track off of this album that you'd love to see them play live this summer? Uh, there are two. There is one that I would like okay. them to play, and there is one that I think would make sense for them to play for the fans. Uh, I personally, my favorite track off of Revenge has always been I just wanna. I I love the, the the silly video in the white room. I I just love that song. I love the way it breaks down. I I love the the silly double entendre of I just wanna f and I, I just love the whole sort of silliness and the rock of it. And I would love to see them play it. Now, is there a reasonable expectation that they would ever play that live again? No. But the song that they should play live other than Unholy, would be Domino. There are a lot of fans, even the Fairweather fans, the Soccer Mom fans, and the Hockey Mom fans, and the whatever fans who heard that on radio, who saw that on Much Music, who saw that on MTV, who saw that on whatever satellite provider you have in Europe. And I think it could fit in, and people would go, yeah, I'm in, I dig this. But I would still prefer... Listen, uh, so... I understand you just had a technical glitch. I'm just going to repeat. 
I was saying that Domino would fit in uh, to the set very comfortably. Uh, it's not that different than modern day Delilah in terms of sound. It's not that different than the song Never Enough or other songs that were on Sonic Boom. And so if you brought Domino back to the set list, I think you could slide it in seamless, seamlessly. Huh, that's a big word. Um, <laughs> and I think it would fit and I think fans would dig it. Like again, you know, all the soccer moms and all the fair weather fans, they've heard the song on the radio. They've seen it on TV. I think they, I think they would get a, a, get a kick out of it, out of it. Okay. I think that covers it. Yeah, absolutely. Good. And um, the, the final question, how pumped are you to hear monster? Uh, absolutely. Very pumped. Uh, you haven't uh, had a chance to, to see my Eric Singer interview yet because it's, it's, as we record this, unreleased to the rest of the world. But Eric, at the end, talks about uh, Monster. And he said, you know, Gene and I and Tommy, we went into the studio and Gene had a bunch of songs that were very much in the vein of A World Without Heroes and very sort of George Harrison kind of songs. And uh, he brought him to Paul and Paul said, no, I don't want anything mellow on this album. I don't want <laughs> any ballads on this album. I don't want anything that is not rock and roll on this album. And so uh, from what I gather, the album has no ballads. It, it's pedal to the metal all the way through. And then you get the guy from Skid Row, Dave who comes out and says on Twitter and publicly, this album sounds like revenge. And I go, hmm, no ballads, sounds like revenge. Yeah, where do I sign up? And so <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm all for it. I mean, if, if Dave and what Eric tells me is 100% true, then this album has to be brilliant. I mean, it just has to be. And so, yeah, I want, I want to hear it. I want to hear it yesterday. And I want to hear that song, Do You Want to Touch Me Now, from Revenge, that was not released. <laughs> um, as far as um, Monster is concerned, I've said this from, the first, from my first listen to Sonic Boom. I think Sonic Boom was a good album, but it left me wanting a lot more because I felt that the band could offer a lot more. Um, if Sonic Boom is the stepping stone to something much bigger which hopefully will be monster i'm i'm all for it and everything that you're saying uh is just getting me that much more excited to hear the album yeah and, and listen it's, i think it's i think you're right sonic boom don't forget was the first album in 10 years that lineup uh eric singer and tommy had never been in the studio together and people go oh whoa, 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 tommy played on psycho circus yeah yeah but with kevin valentine on drums not right. Eric Singer. So this was so this was the first time those for, those four guys got in the room and made an album and Sonic Boom turned out pretty darn good for a first try. But now with the extensive touring with the fact that they've been together since 2004 as this lineup um the fact that Paul and the the market out there is asking for active rock songs, you know, power ballads are dead. To a certain degree, I would say. So, right. You know, you, you you do the two plus two plus two plus two plus two, and it's it's turning out that this could be 
a real important album in Kiss's career. I mean, this might establish this lineup of the band as being the classic lineup. You know, it, it, it might be silly to say, but it might be. People might just say, ah, you know what? I like Tommy. I like Eric. This works for me. And Monster could be that album. Certainly has the potential. Yeah, I, I think if the music backs it up, I don't think people will have any issues because they've they've backed every other lineup. But the, I mean, there have been so many hangups, you know, with the makeup and and again, I think the set list has has done a lot to um, to hurt them. And uh, what baffles me with the set list is that when any other album came out previous to this, even going back to Revenge, they played unholy um take it off i just wanna and uh the ballad off of that uh um, time i look at you but you know what every time i look at you they played all those live the, the thing that changed though was the marketplace in the 80s and in the 90s kiss was selling music to new fans to a new generation to an mtv crowd in 2012 motley crew kiss van halen they're not selling to a new crowd. They're selling to the already converted. They're selling to the diehards. They're selling to the people that have always been there. So, you know, it's a different marketplace. So when you're selling to the already converted, well, you know, the guy wants to hear Parasite. So we play Parasite. So there's, there's no there's no need to play the new song. It's sort of that change in the marketplace, right? Like, you know, you play Unholy because you hope that it becomes a single and it sells two million records. That's not the reality for Kiss in 2012. It doesn't matter if modern day Delilah is played live. It doesn't matter if whatever song from uh, Monster is played live because it's not going to ship 2 million copies for them. So then why not just put out EPs like twice a year? You know, do, do a, a four song EP that you're only going to be playing one song live? Good question. Listen. My personal opinion, I mean, that the last answer was the sort of the business model opinion and what the marketplace is. <laughs> My personal right. opinion is you put together a 20-song set list, and within that set list, there's three or four songs that are your wild cards. You don't need to have 50 songs to, to switch in, but, you know, you get on to song number six, seven, eight in the lineup, Tonight, it's whatever, Detroit, Rock City, Parasite, and Nothing to Lose. Then you go over from Montreal, you go over to Cleveland, and then song six, seven, eight is shouted out loud, uh, you know, King of the Nighttime World and what a Shandy or whatever. And then, you know, by the time you get to the fifth city down the road, you're back to Detroit. Rock. Like, you just rotate those three positions in and out. And I think that would be exciting enough that people would say, oh, you know what? I caught them in Montreal tonight. Let me go see Quebec City tomorrow because I'm going to get three different songs guaranteed. Maybe they'll switch something else up. I think that would make all a world of difference, but, you know. I, I agree with you as well. I think that uh, with these Van Halen shows, I mean, I think a lot of people didn't know what to expect because they they have been doing that with this tour where they've mixed up four or five songs a night. There's no reason why Kiss couldn't do it. Yeah. But... You know? And there is no reason. When you had the reunion tour and the farewell tour, there were two reasons why you couldn't do that. It was called Peter Chris and Ace Fraley. <laughs> right. 
Peter Chris could not play. Peter Chris couldn't play unholy. Peter Chris couldn't play crazy nights. I mean, not you know. And Ace Fraley can't can't really do the guitar work on unholy or or, so they couldn't do it. But Eric Singer, listen, you could throw Enter Sandman into the set list, and Eric Singer could play it. Um, Tommy Thayer <laughs> can handle anything Ace did. He can handle anything Bruce did, and obviously he can handle anything he's done. So the, the the only element that's wrong now is that the leaders are saying, no, we're not changing it. But musically, talent-wise, they could switch it up every single night. I agree. I, I think that they could do that uh, without a problem. Yeah, and you know, when I talk to some of the band members, I get... Well, Mick, you, you don't understand. It's a big show. It's a production. There's lighting cues. There's pyro cues. And it's like, listen, Metallica changes eight songs a night. They have pyro. <laughs> they right. have lighting. They go to the, to the sound guy and say, listen, tonight, because we're playing Shout It Out Loud, you're going to do the pyro after. It's really not that complicated. I mean, yes, it's a big show. Yeah. And, but the guys working the crew are professionals. They're paid the big bucks make those little changes yep yeah for for god's sakes metallica is only keeping four four songs the same on a nightly basis so well listen (laughs) the exception of the tour this year because of uh, they're doing the black album thing but normally when they do a sort of a more free-flowing tour without the sort of concept of following an album they're switching eight songs a night out of a 20 song set list that's 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 incredible. Listen, I saw five Metallica shows last year or in 2009. I saw them play 40 different songs in five nights. I saw Kiss three times that year. I saw Kiss play 15 different songs. So, you know, do the math. What's, <laughs> what's wrong with that? Right. Well, uh, again, uh, as we mentioned before, what, what Metallica did over the holidays, um, no one has any excuse after them playing, what was that, close to 80 songs? Yeah. 80 different songs in, in four nights? It's insane. And what I'm really looking forward to, and people haven't maybe noticed yet, is that they're playing Mexico at the beginning of August. They're playing one, one stadium in Mexico City for, I think, eight nights in a row. Mm-hmm. You know that come the eighth night, they're going to be playing stuff. I mean, they're probably going to be covering ABBA at that point because they'll have gone through their <laughs> entire catalog. And right, you know, if if unfortunately, and I hate to say it, if 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 it was Kiss playing Mexico eight nights in a row, you'd get eight nights of the same show, kind of like going to Broadway and seeing a Broadway show. They come out, they do the song, and the girl comes out and does her song. And, and you know, it's it's too bad. I mean, part of being a rock band is taking on a little danger and a little mystery. It's not being Broadway where every night you expect a script to be followed. And, you know, unfortunately they're following a script, but not Metallica. That that Mexico run is going to be phenomenal in August. What do you think about the shows they're going to be doing in New Jersey? I'm very excited. They're playing, I mean, forget all the crappy bands they have on those shows, Um, but they're going to be playing Ride the Lightning in full, they're going to play the song "Escape" for the first for the time first time ever, and they yeah. hate the song. They hate <laughs> it. They don't want to play it. So it'll be interesting to finally get a live version of that. You know, I 
I wonder, and I was contemplating this the other day, if that song all of a sudden starts popping up in their set due to whatever reaction they get uh, for being played live for the first time. Man, do I ever hope so. Because I understand the circumstance under which it was recorded, you know, or the rumor is, or whatever. The story is that the record company said, we need something that's more of a single, blah, blah. I wasn't there. I don't know if it's true, but that's what I've heard. And so right. they were sort of forced to do this song, and that's why they hate it. But if they can modernize it, if they can add some new production to it, and if they can deliver it, and they can hear in Mexico probably 75,000 or 100,000 people go, Bruh! <laughs> man, if it could, could just convince them that the song is cool now in 2012, I would love to see that song live. I mean, it's a great song. It's one of those great lost songs. I mean, that whole Ride the Lightning album is great. I mean, tell me one bad song on that album, honestly. No, it's uh, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I think the first two albums are like that. <laughs> for for as much press that Master of Puppets gets, I would take either the first two albums over that without a doubt. Yeah, you know, and... Uh... I'll go in. I mean, I'll take I'll take every album up to the Black Album without a doubt. They're all great, but uh, and then after that they lose the plot. But Metallica, you know, the first what are we talking here? Kill 'em All, Master Ride. So the first five albums, yeah, are masterpieces. And we'll complain about the bass sound on whatever on Justice. It's still a master. You know, five still masters, a great album. And, and <laughs> complain about you know Black Album, oh, three minute songs, pop radio, whatever. Still, listen, we all love that album. Yeah. Five, five songs, five albums right out of the, right out of the can that are brilliant. So. And, and I mean, if, if you look at e even what followed, I think Load is a tremendous album that I think with years or throughout the years, I've heard a lot more people say positive things about it because I think people have also realized how a lot of bands over the course of time, tend to evolve. Unless you're ACDC or Slayer or you know certain bands that are dead set in their ways, pretty much every other band has evolved to some extent. So I think that first Load album, people are starting to appreciate it more. Um, after that, I mean, I, 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 I have no excuse for what came out after that, but even still, each album afterwards has had some good material and some bad material so well, i'm not sure about saint anger and lulu but death magnetic well, certainly was it was a good album but you know the funny thing about metallica talking about live shows is that when you go back to load and reload and i'm putting both together and you start hearing songs like fuel and outlaw torn and um uh what was a slow song that they first played um uh, anyway, you know, King Nothing and all those songs. Right. On the album themselves, sort of meh. But as they've played them live over the years, and they've played King Nothing in 2009, and they've played Outlaw Torn, even they played it just at, at Christmas time. Yeah. Bringing those songs to the live stage has made people curious and has made people go back to them and have made people say, you know what? Outlaw Torn in the context of you know, for whom the bell tolls and like mixed in with the other ain't such a bad song. And right. and that's where I think Kiss does a disservice to themselves. Cause if you take Deuce and Parasite and Detroit Rock City and Rock and Roll All Night, and all of a sudden you were to throw in 
reason to live and you were to throw in who wants to be lonely and you throw in all hell's breaking loose and you you sort of couch them in that context people might go hey what what was that song after detroit rock city i don't really know all hell's breaking loose let me go and i think people would go back and give those songs and those albums more of a listen more of a second look and you know that's where metallica got it right i think they made people go back yeah. and look at those albums and get and go hmm you know it's not such a bad song yeah i i agree and I'm, i agree 100 percent. what's the damn song i'm thinking of um what was that first video they did for uh for load um um damn it i can see the video in my head until it uh until it, until it sleeps until it sleeps yeah. there you go i mean people didn't really like that song and now as you go back and they've played it live they played it live not too long ago uh, in 2009 they played it and you go oh yeah that song isn't that bad is it and yeah i wish kiss would do that boy you know other than other than the set list as as a crazy fan of kiss i don't have a lot of complaints i mean listen i could certainly pull out stuff just for the sake of argument but i just really enjoy that they still exist and that they still tour yeah but the set i uh, i i agree and and especially after what you touched upon before the um the farewell tour which i saw i saw on july 3rd uh 2000 at the uh, virginia beach amphitheater and it was something that i'd always dreamed about seeing those original four members and it was a nightmare. <laughs> it is one of the worst shows that I've ever seen, and not because of uh, Gene Paul Race, but because of Peter's lack of playing, and yeah, so, so, just terrible. <laughs> what I find amusing the most out of all this is that, uh, you know, especially on my Facebook, because it's sort of become this landing space for Kiss fans. People will say, we need Ace back. We need Peter back. And I go, no, 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 they can't play. And they go, yes, yes, yes. And then just the other day, one of the most ardent fans of the original lineup, uh, I made a comment about the Millennium concert. And he goes, oh, the timing on the drumming was off. And it's like, yes, it's Peter Chris, you dummy. (laughs) That's what I've been saying. And it's like, so even the people who want them back, know that they're no good. So it's like, what are you doing? Why would you want them yeah. back? You know they're no good. I mean, the farewell tour, my friend. Oh, I saw 11 reunion shows. I went to 11 mm-hmm. shows. On the Psycho Circus, I think I caught two or three. And on the farewell tour, I got to the point where I said to myself, I'm a Kiss fan. I will go if they come in Montreal, but I'm not going anywhere else. And I shouldn't have been thinking that. I should have been saying, it's Peter, Chris, and Ace Bailey. I got to go to 20 shows. And, <laughs> and, and I just, no, it was horrible. They had done the, the L.A. Forum. Or was it the uh, L.A., was it Dodger Stadium? Uh, no, Dodger that, Stadium, yeah. That, that was mm-hmm. a Psycho Circus tour. Oh, it was dreadful. Absolutely dreadful. And then I saw them in 2003 with Peter, Chris, and Tommy Thayer. And I was like, all right, get in there. And then I saw them in 2004 with Eric Singer and Tommy Thayer. And suddenly they're playing Making Love. And I'm like, making love. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) We're making love. 
and, and, and they're playing Parasite again, and they're playing, what else did they play? They played Unholy, and it's like, oh, thank God, yes, thank you. And I really, after 2004, I thought, Kiss is back. They're going to play millions of different songs every night. And now we're in 2012, and it's like, ah, oh, crap, the same 17 songs. What happened? Yeah. <laughs> but there was a moment there. There was a moment. There was a glimmer of hope on that tour. Definitely was. Oh, the 2004 tour is so brilliant. I mean, they're playing Christine 16. They're playing She. They're playing Unholy, Making Love. Um, what else were they doing? Uh, they were doing I Was Made for Love and You. They, I mean, they were all. They were playing um, um, All the Way. They played All the Way. Um, right. Brilliant. And, and now all of a sudden, eh, we can't do that. Nobody wants to hear All the Way. Uh, can't do that. It's like, come on. Yes, you can. Do you think people really want to hear Animal live? I mean, really? Animal from Sonic Boom? No. Right. We don't want to hear that. I'm an animal. <laughs> what surprises me is that they don't take the sort of consensus that they get from the uh, cruise ship that they started. You know, they, they played, what, three nights? Outside of that little unplugged thing, they played three nights, and the three nights they played the same exact songs. I mean, what's the point? Yeah, yeah, no, it's silly. It, it's completely silly. And and when you say to them, "Did you see how they reacted to when you played, you know, whatever, take me?" They go, "Yeah, but it's the diehards. That's why they're on the cruise." It's like, ugh, ugh. Yes. They don't get it. They don't <laughs> get it. Um, you know, what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? Let me tell you my story. I've got a man-sized predicament. And it's a big one. Goes like this. Yeah.
through that door, it's the same damn thing. And that bitch bends over, and I forget my name. Ow. There you go. Part one of the Kiss Revenge special here on the Mars Attacks podcast. Want to thank Mitch from PureGainAudio.com for coming on and discussing this. And the next week we'll have part two, which will run uh, just as long. I had to edit the crap out of this. And even still, there's that one glitch in the middle that I sort of kept in. But anyway, hope you guys enjoyed this. I'm assuming that the die car, the die hard, was thinking of car jam, and was thinking about die hard at the same time because we're gonna end things with car jam, 1981, a song that a lot of you people also know as being the foundation for Breakout, which was later sung by Richie Scarlet and then Todd Howarth in Ace Frehley's band. It would be cool to have uh, Scott Coogan singing that um, with Ace. Actually, I don't think Scott's with Ace at the moment. But anyway, um, thanks for listening. Go check out Mitch's uh, great, great interviews. And um, just want to remind you again, Twitter, Facebook, all that great stuff. Go to the right-hand column of MarsAttacksRadio.com. Um, subscribe to the podcast via iTunes or stream it or download it directly from MarsAttacksRadio.com. It's as simple as it gets. Thanks again for listening. We're going to leave you with Car Jam 1981. See ya. <laughs>